kind of stoked to talk to you about stuff today because I was thinking about this um, feature that we have in our brain, okay? The um, social scientists have figured out that in some ways our brains work on remote control without us necessarily knowing exactly what they're doing. Our brains will form opinions. Our brains will uh, um, value things. Our brains will process information. And they do it sometimes in ways that are not conscious. You are more than your conscious thoughts. And if you drive, you've probably experienced that. You've probably realized sometime that you are home and you don't remember the last 10 minutes you drove. You were just kind of driving on remote control. Uh, the, the, the studies are replete in the, the field of psychology and social science about how this works in the brain. And they divide it up and there are different things that the brain does that take shortcuts so that you can make decisions without having to think through everything like a chess player might with all of the possible permutations. And one of the biggest shortcuts we take is called association. And association means when we hear something in our brain or we process something in our brain, our brain unconsciously often will associate it with other things. And the studies on this are amazing. The studies affect everything from how we process data to how we form opinions. They, they did studies where they took Rasputin. Now Rasputin was an evil, wretched, horrible person. He was as bad as they come. Rasputin, uh, uh, under the cloak of being a Russian priest... Rasputin was responsible for murder, for rape, for all sorts of horrible crimes. And they had a group of test subjects. I think they were college students. And they gave those college students a narrative about Rasputin and said on a scale of 1 to 10, how bad was he? With 10 being the worst. Now, half of the group got the true facts about Rasputin. But the other half of the study group had a tweak, a change. What the, the study designers did is they put in Rasputin's birthday and they put in, instead of his true birthday, they put in the birthday for each individual who got the exam or who got the, the analysis. So like if Greg's got it, they would have put in the copy they gave Greg, Greg's birthday. James, they'd have put in your birthday. And they do this for each person without them realizing it. So then they all categorize how bad is Rasputin. And for those people who were in the group where Rasputin, they thought, shared their birthday... I mean, he's still a horrible guy. They still ranked him horrible. But he was a lot, not nearly as horrible as when he had a different birthday. Because in their brain, they just associated that unconsciously with good things, with their birthday. And it took some edge off. 
the Bible has been written, inspired by God, but produced by God through humans. And so it engaged not just the Holy Spirit, but it also engaged the people through whom the Holy Spirit worked. And it makes not just logical sense, but it, it, is, it is because of this that we are able to see certain ideas and themes and words that Paul, for example, might write about but will trigger back from Paul's knowledge of those words in earlier scripture. He will associate them properly. And it's one of many reasons that we've got an ability to study the Bible by taking different themes and ideas and narratives and using those to better understand other passages of scripture. I'm remiss if I don't say happy birthday to the country. But having said that now, and I say that looking out and seeing several people who are dressed basically in the American flag. I saw several of you this morning and felt like I needed to start singing the national anthem instead of saying hello uh, because you look so patriotic. You know, it was interesting. I was in England till yesterday, Last came home last night, and uh, they don't celebrate the 4th of July like we do. Anyway, all right, your assignment this week, recognizing the way the brain can do association and just recognizing the Holy Spirit's consistent work in Scripture, was to think of certain biblical themes. And the two that I really want us to talk about today is of a love story. The Bible has a love story and the Bible is giving. Now, both of those, in a sense, are themes, but giving is more a theme, and love story, in a sense, is more of a meta-narrative. It's more of a narrative story that tells itself across the pages. But we do this within the guise of the Bible being and understanding that the Bible's a library, not simply a book. The Bible has, and we've got some visitors today, the Bible has 66 books in it. So, like, if you want to go buy a Bible, it's like, buy one book get 65 free because there's like 66 books in there so you got 66 books and of those old testament will have 39 and the new testament will have 27 if you happen to pick up a catholic bible you'll get 14 in the apocrypha but having said that these books are loaded with themes and narratives that go all the way across so we can take those themes and narratives and we can look through all of the books with them and what we'll find when we do is something that's just really really important because not only do we walk through the different themes or narratives but those themes and narratives through that power of association and through the work of the holy spirit will shine its light and help us better understand and illuminate other passages of scripture as we do this type of work. So with that, I want to give you the idea of making better sense of the Bible by understanding major themes and major storylines within the Bible. And that's what we're doing during this phase of this study. Now, uh, today, here's our roadmap for what we're going to get done. I want to talk about the love story narrative first. Then, I, as Dale Hearn here, he told me he just doesn't give a rip for love stories. Oh, good, you came anyway. 
Um, Then I want to talk about the theme of God as a giver. And then we'll have points of home, for home. So let's start with the love story narrative. It's all over the book. This is a meta narrative in the truest sense of the word. This is a story that's told from the beginning to the end. And I think it's appropriate when we're talking about it to first ask the question, well, what is love? Because I love my wife. I sort of love our dog, but I absolutely love apple pie. Yet I feel very differently about my wife than I do apple pie, even though I use the same word for both. I certainly feel differently about apple pie than I do my dog. You put those two together, I'm going apple pie all day, every day. Now, if we look in our Bibles, our Bibles were not written in English. Our Bibles were written, the Old Testament, in Hebrew and a little Aramaic, a related language. The New Testament in Greek, uh, save a few Hebrew or Aramaic words that are added in there, but using Greek letters. And I think there's a Latin word or two maybe added. Um, but we have plenty of Greek words for love. The Greeks had love well-defined. You can find as many as eight to ten words that you could probably legitimately translate as love with different nuanced meanings. So, and, and not all of those are in the Bible, but one that we would all know in here, maybe, is agape. Agapao is the verb. Agape love. And agape love is um, a very biblical term. It's, it's got a, some unique usage within, within the Bible, both the Greek Old Testament and the New Testament. But it's a reference to a love that's a decision. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an attitude that you choose to make. It's a deliberate love. It's one that holds that which is loved in high regard. It's one that will take action on behalf of that which is loved. And it, it's very much, uh, uh, that is an incredible kind of love that is an expression of our God. Our God decided to love us. Our God chose to love us. Our God holds us in high regard. Our God will take action based upon that love. Now, it's not the only word used for God and his love. But it's the probably the one that gets the most attention and in some ways is the most compelling because it seems unique in some ways to God. There's a second Greek word for love, um, uh, the, the noun form, philia. It takes it, a lot of words with it. You have Philadelphia, where you add it with brother, and it's brotherly love. Uh, or with city, I guess. Delphia city. City of brotherly love. But, I mean, you've got, you've got love in a brotherly love sense. This can mean a fondness. This can mean an affection. This can mean an attachment. Um, uh, you know, I've, I've got Tim over here. I tell Tim often, hey, I love you. Now, I don't mean I love him the same way I love Becky. But I mean a brotherly affection. He's like my brother. 
And so it's easy for me to say, I love you. Now, those words are both used a lot in the Bible. There's another word that the Greeks had for love. Uh, it's the word eros. And eros is used, I'm not sure if it's used much in the New Testament. It's used a few times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But eros is a romance, a, a passion. We get the word erotic from it. And uh, so, so you can think through. And, and there's more. The Greeks had storge. They had lots of different words for love. But this is mainly what we're dealing with in biblical terms. Now, if we go to the Hebrew Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament had really one main word for love. Oh, they've got a few others that get translated. But there's one main word. It's ahev. And ahev is um, used a whole lot like we use our word uh, uh, love. I mean, you can love somebody, ahev, and you can ahev uh, uh, apple pie. That They didn't have apple pie, but if they had, they would have used ahev for it. They'll use I have for all sorts of things. It's, it's just like our word for love. Now, the love story that's found in the narrative from the beginning to end is not a love story that's simply using those words. But it's a love story that expresses the meaning of love. You, you don't have to... I, I, I assure you, that everybody would love to hear a genuine, I love you. But I can also assure you that everyone would love to experience a genuine, I love you. To say it can be done sometimes without much oomph behind it. To do it is something that's very special. And so if we look at the Bible, we don't want to just focus on where the word is used or which word is used. But to follow this narrative, we want to focus on the character and the storyline that runs throughout the Bible that's centered on God's love for you and for me and for humanity. And that story starts in the very beginning. God makes humanity uniquely compared to all of the other living creatures. Humanity uniquely in Genesis is created in the image of God. The, the idea behind being made in the image of God is a massive idea. But let me give you at least two prongs for that. One prong is we are made hardwired in a way where we can relate uniquely to the creator. As image bearers, we have a, a, a special, unique relationship to him apart from those of other animals. And then a second extension of that is in the world around us because we do have that unique relationship and because we are made in his image, we have an ability to shine his image to the world around us, to be a mirror that reflects who God is as we live, eat, breathe, and relate to others. 
So within the framework of that, God creates Adam and Eve. He creates man in his own image. Male and female, he creates them. And that's the beginning of the love story. Because God's relating to humanity. He's walking in the garden. He's talking to them. He's giving them choices. If you read Genesis 1, God names everything. He names the day and the night. He names the sun and the moon. He's naming, he's naming, he's naming. But then he makes humanity in his image and he says to Adam, now you get to name things. And whatever you name them, that's what they'll be. And so Adam's got this God-like ability to make choices and decisions that have real consequences and power. And it's all part and parcel of being entwined with God who walks in the garden in the cool of the day and, and relates to Adam and Eve. Now, God doesn't leave Adam alone because that's not a good situation. So God says in Genesis 2.24, after he's made Eve, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. They'll become one flesh. And that's going to be very important in this love story of God. God's not loving Adam more than Eve. He's not loving Eve more than Adam. They're one flesh to him too. He loves them as one. And they love each other in a unique oneness that speaks to not only uh, uh, their personal bond with each other. In the same sense that God, though three persons, is one person. You know, there's a unique bond and, and man and woman have a unique bond. But it means more than that, culturally. It means that, that there's the establishment of something fresh and new and unique. A family, if you will. And, and it's one that's, that's why we've got leaving the father and mother and holding fast to the wife. Now, this love story, I could go page by page and chapter by chapter because we see it manifested in the way God calls Abram. We see it manifested in the way he changes his name. We see it manifested in so many ways. But in the interest of time, we're going to be the stone that skips over the water. And we're going to just skip through the Bible and hit some highlights, okay? How many of you, Larry Lipton, you better raise your hand on this one, have celebrated Shavuot? Yes. Shavuot is a Hebrew word. It means weeks. It's the Feast of Weeks. In the New Testament, it's Pentecost. It happened 49 days plus one after Passover, 50 days after Passover. It's also traditionally within Judaism and with the rabbis recognized as the day that God wed his people. God and Israel had a wedding. You miss the love story, an important part of it, if you don't understand that what happened after, remember, the people are in Israel. They're in bondage. They've been there hundreds of years. God gets Moses. 
God sends Moses. And actually, there's something really cool if you really dig down into the Hebrew. When, when Moses, Moses had killed the Egyptian and Moses gets kind of he self-exiles and heads out. And he gets to uh, around Mount Sinai and, and the women at, at a well are getting um, abused, for lack of a better way of saying it, by some fellas. And Moses steps in and defends them. And what happens with, and Moses winds up marrying one of them. And, and it's written in a way that's very parallel in language and vocabulary to what's going to happen with Israel itself on Mount Sinai, 17 chapters or so later. And, and so you've got this story of, of who becomes Moses' father-in-law, where after the, the, the confrontation, there's the feast and the banquet and the wedding, and Moses takes the people and, or the wife and, and all of this stuff. It's fascinating in and of itself. But I'm skipping us to Sinai. Moses has now delivered the people. He's come out, brought the people to Sinai. And it's on Sinai in Exodus 19 where you see God proposing to Israel. The proposal, Exodus 19.5. Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You'll be my treasured possession among all the peoples. Because all the earth is mine, God says. God said, you, if, if you choose Israel, I will treasure you. You will be my wife in a metaphorical sense. The people accept. Verse 8. The people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we'll do. We'll keep our end of the deal. Now, you may be saying, well, I've been to weddings, and that's not quite how they go. You're supposed to say, do you people take God to be your lawful? Don't think American wedding. A wedding was a contract first and foremost back then. And this is the proposal. And this is the acceptance. Then it's really interesting. The people have to clean themselves up like you would before a wedding. Even, uh, Jewish women would, would use the mikvah, a uh, 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 bath, to, to clean themselves up. Moses goes down from the mountain to the people, consecrates the people. They wash their garments. They get clean for the wedding. And then they join together. Now, if you ever go to a Jewish wedding, most of them are under a chuppah, a, a, a tent, a, 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 like a, yeah, canopy. Thank you. It's a chuppah. Most of them are under that. The chuppah in this case is Mount Sinai. Look at the passage. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They come out to meet the groom. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly as God comes and meets his people, his bride. And then there's the marriage contract and God writes it out. 
the ketuvah, the marriage contract. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there and I'll give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I've written for their instruction, for them to know what to do, for their end of the bargain. And this is written in a narrative fashion, but it's written where any Hebrew at the time would have realized this is a wedding. This is why you'll find in a number of places in the Old Testament, and I just pulled out one from Isaiah 54, the reference, your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, Yahweh of hosts, Adonai, Hashem, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. It's your husband, Israel. You can't read the story of Hosea without picking this up. Hosea is called as a prophet and he's called and, and the story is one which speaks of the people of Israel as the bride of Hosea who are out committing adultery and being unfaithful. And it is the allegory to what God is saying The people of Israel who were to be his wife were being unfaithful. Look at uh, the language in Hosea chapter 2. God says, That he's going to woo his adulterous bride back. He's going to woo Israel back. Behold, I will allure her. I'll bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I'll give her her vineyards. I'll make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she'll answer as in the days of her youth, as the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. I'm going to take her back. I'm going to woo her back. And it's hearkening to that picture of Egypt, the wilderness, as the time of the marriage. Because this is the story of God and his people. And peppered in the Old Testament are small vignettes that emphasize the purity and beauty and importance of marriage. You've got it in the law, but you've got it in stories. Think of the story of Ruth. Ruth is a story that's rooted in the idea that in Ruth's case, a foreigner comes into the nation of Israel and becomes an Israelite by choice, not by birth. But out of an intense love for her mother-in-law and ultimately her Hebrew husband, Boaz, And she becomes the great-grandmother of King David. And she's got this wonderful passage in Ruth chapter 1. Where her mother-in-law says, look, my sons are dead. You are now a widow, but you're still a young widow. You just need to stay behind and find a new husband. And she wants to be in that relationship, that covenant relationship. And she has this beautiful passage. Don't urge me to leave you. Or return from following you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I'll die. There I'll be buried. May God do so to me. If I fail to do this. 
You've got peppered throughout the Old Testament these vignettes that show the beauty of a marital relationship far beyond a simple contract or covenant. You've got the whole book of the Song of Songs, which is a book of of a love story, maybe even a play, some think. A drama to be acted out. But it's, it's this whole concept and, and, and it's, it's personal and it's, um, in places graphic, not in a exploitation sense, but in a sense of explanation of the deep love and the deep beauty that exists within the marital relationship that's expressed in that song. And rabbis, for centuries and centuries, certainly back to the time of Christ and before, understood that. Not all, I mean, it's not like there was total consensus, but there's a huge understanding with a huge bunch that this is in Scripture because it speaks ultimately to God's love for his people and that marriage. You get into the New Testament. What's the very first miracle God works, Jesus works in the New Testament? It's at the wedding at Cana. John chapter 2. Jesus is present at the wedding. They run out of wine. Wedding was a seven-day process. They've run out of wine. Or they're about to. Humiliation to the host of the wedding. Mary says... I got you covered. You know, she's, she's getting, make sure everything works right. This is, just do whatever Jesus tells her to. He'll fix this. Jesus says, woman, my time hadn't come yet. Some people read that to understand this isn't my wedding. But Jesus clearly does what needs to be done because God's present at that wedding and the act of Jesus at the wedding of turning water into wine is one that shows God cares about marriage. He cares about what's happening there. There's a reason so many wedding ceremonies go to that as a text, a primary text. I mean, think about it. God is present at the wedding in Jesus Christ and he's doing something miraculous there to make it special. That's why within a lot of Christian churches and traditions, marriage is understood to be not simply a state contract, but marriage is understood to be um, a, a, a consecrated moment where the presence of God makes things different. Now, Paul associates, he's got this whole meta-narrative working through his brain, but he's got that insight through the Holy Spirit that allows him to take a passage where he's talking about how husbands need to treat their wives. And in Ephesians 5, he says the following, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her. Husbands out there, if you have a wife, moral to this is, 
you'd take a bullet for her in a moment without thinking twice about it. Moral of this is your wife's happiness, success, and walk before the Lord take a higher priority than your own safety and health. That's the model Jesus gave us. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Ah, we read that in Genesis 2 just a few moments ago. A man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This mysterion in the Greek, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. This is a mystery where the meaning has been revealed. The idea that a man and woman become one flesh is a mystery that's profound because it's the expression of Christ and his people. Christ and the church. So go back. What did we say are the implications of being made in the image of God and the two becoming one flesh? The two becoming one flesh sets up an intimacy that's, 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 that's a, a, a big difference maker. It makes husband and wife different than any other relationship the husband will be having or the wife will be having. And that intimacy is there between Christ and his church as Christ dwells in our hearts richly through the Holy Spirit. And as we seek to be his voice and his hands and his feet and we are the body of Christ. But it's more than that. It's that new family idea as well. There is a family unit that's made for the world to see between Christ and his church. It makes such a huge difference to us. I love the patriotic clothes that people have on today. I don't know where Miss Carolyn is. She's not here today, but she would have been so... She'd have had sparklers coming out of her hat. She's in Virginia. I'll bet you there she's got sparklers coming out of her hat. But we wear that to show our patriotism, to show a love for this incredible government that God's uh, uh, placed into our, our governmental system, America. But it should always pale in comparison to the way we display the love of Jesus Christ. That should be our predominant colors that we wear. You say, well, what colors are those? Those are the colors that change how you behave and treat other people, whether you're dressed up red, white, and blue, or whether you're wearing red and green. Because we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God, but more than that, we are the bride of Christ. We are that unique family. We are the two become one flesh. And this storyline continues through Scripture. And you get to the book of Revelation, which is, is difficult for some people to understand. I'll grant that. And maybe sometime I'll teach on it because I think that, that it should not be that difficult to understand. But I'll tell you this, it's very clear regardless of your approach to Revelation, that it speaks of Jesus and his bride in Revelation 19. 
Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. That's the church. That's you and me. So you've got this long meta-narrative of God creating people to be in a love relationship with Him. But Satan and, and human uh, vice stepping in the way. And God working redemption through it all. And giving images and stories and lines to explain His love. And His pursuit of His bride. And the unity He craves with His people. And this is a theme and narrative that we can look at, we can focus on, and it should illuminate other verses of Scripture for us. So, for example, God's having a wedding ceremony with His people, and He does the wedding contract. And in that wedding contract, God etches with His own finger on stone, don't commit adultery. Now, That's certainly a civil concept for those of us who are married. A commandment. An instruction. But it's much deeper than that. God's writing that to His bride too. God's telling Israel, don't go after other gods. I am the Lord your God. You worship me and me alone. I am bound to you and you are bound to me. That was the deal. That was the marriage. We go to other gods when we put anything in the place of the Lord as number one. That means anything else that we're going to trust over and against God and what he said. That means anything that we're going to sell ourselves to get. Anything that we're willing to compromise our integrity to obtain. No. God is number one. God is greater than all others in our lives. We are not called into a relationship with him of adultery. And the nice part is, he will never cheat on you. We never have to worry that God is going to cheat on us. He will be faithful to us as we walk with him. Now, it doesn't just shine a light on things like that. It shines a light on all of these wedding parables. Jesus is giving wedding parable after wedding parable. Look at Matthew 25. Matthew 25 starts out. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five were foolish, five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but didn't take enough oil, didn't take any extra oil. 
Wives took flasks of oil with their lamps. The bridegroom was delayed. They all became drowsy and slept. At midnight, there's a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come on out. The virgins rose. They trimmed their lamps. And the foolish one said, hey, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. The wise answered saying, hey, we won't have enough for ourselves. Just go buy some. While they were going to buy it, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Look at Matthew chapter 22. And think about these. Knowing Jesus is fully aware of this meta-narrative. Again, Jesus spoke to him in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He sent his servants to call those invited to the wedding feast, but they wouldn't come. He sent other servants saying, Tell those who were invited that, Look, it's all ready. I've prepared my dinner. I've got the ox, the fat calves. They've been slaughtered. Everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. They went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized the servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed the murderers. He burned the cities. He said to his servants, the wedding feast's ready. But those invited weren't worthy. Go to the main roads, invite the wedding feast, as many as you can find. And the servants went out in the roads. They gathered everybody, bad and good. The wedding hall was filled with guests. But even they had to be dressed right. Jesus uses these parables to speak of the kingdom of heaven. And we need to read these parables, but read them within the context of this love relationship. When Jesus is approached and he's asked, well, why aren't your disciples fasting? A good Jew back then would fast two days a week. Why aren't your disciples fasting? And Jesus said, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom's with them? The days will come when the bridegroom's taken away from them and then they'll fast. These messages of Jesus should be drawing our attention to that overriding narrative in Scripture. When Jesus says something like, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Jesus is saying, you will find in me the greatest love there is. It's a love for you. So you get passages like Matthew 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it. This is the Last Supper. This is Eucharist. This is Communion. Jesus broke it, gave it to the disciples, said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to him, saying, drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Greater love has no man than to do that. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you In my Father's kingdom. What's he talking about there? What's he talking about? Two possible explanations that make the most sense to me. One is when we take communion, in some eternal sense, he's taking it with us. But I think more directly, that's the wedding feast. He says, I'm going to drink it with you at the wedding feast. 
that was talked about in Revelation 19. You keep reading through. What happens on the anniversary of the wedding? If Shavuot is the wedding celebration of Sinai, what happens on Shavuot? 1,200 plus years later, 1,300 years later in Jerusalem. Maybe we should call it by its Greek name instead of Shavuot. Let's call it Pentecost. But it's on Pentecost that the Holy Spirit comes and the church begins. On an anniversary of the wedding on Sinai, we have the bride Forming in Jerusalem. And hence you get Revelation 19. That continued past what I gave you earlier. The angel said to me. Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. He will again partake with us in that meal. All right, We got ten minutes left. That's the love story narrative. I want to give you the theme of God as a giver. We're going to rip through this. Because I'm sure Dale's not the only one who did his homework. So we're ready to go. There's just a theme. God's a giver. God is a giver extraordinaire. The Garden of Eden. That was a gift. They were just put there. Eve, she was a gift. God just gave her to Adam. After the flood, God says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, just like I gave you the garden, I'm going to give you everything. Natan is the Hebrew word to give. Nathan, we get from it. God's a giver. God appears to Abram. What does he say? To your offspring, I'm going to give the land. He says it over and over. God's going to give him land. God's a giver. God gives the law. God gives the law, Paul says, as a tutor, pedagogues, as a tutor to lead us to Christ. God says, I will give you rest. My presence will go with you. He could have ended it there. My presence will go with you. He says, no. And I will give you. I got a present for you. I got a gift for you. I'm going to give you rest. The Psalms, over and over, I pulled up 2911, say God gives us strength. In your time of weakness, you have a faithful, loving God who will not commit adultery on you, who will be faithful to you, who when you cry out, give me strength, will give you strength. One of the video thoughts for the day this week, I anticipate, I haven't filmed it yet. I think I'm going to do this week uh, kind of these little Jesus phrases we get and, and look at them. What, what, what do we like about them? What don't we like about them? But you know, one of those phrases is, God doesn't give us more than we can handle. Spoiler alert. Wrong. 
God doesn't give us more than he can handle. So we pray for strength because we can't make it on our own through a lot that this world has for us. But God gives strength. God gives his attention to us. You don't have to worry that if you pray, your prayers are going to bounce off the ceiling. You don't have to worry God's on vacation. You don't have to worry that he's taking a nap. You never get a busy signal. He doesn't fail to answer his cell. He's always going to give you attention. He's a giver. God the giver. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Now there's a trick statement. Because first he purifies the desires of your heart. I've had a lot of desires of my heart that I think were very godly desires that he did not give me. So at that point, I've got to trust him. He will give you deliverance. He will give you understanding. Children are a gift of the Lord. Paul says, Scripture, the oracles of God were entrusted to the Jews. That was an advantage of being a Jew. God gave us the Scriptures. Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you relief. I will give you rest. God's the giver. Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's a giver. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God's a giver. John six fifty one. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. By the way, go back to the Old Testament story. God gave the people the manna. He gave the people the water. He gave the people the quail. Jesus said, if anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He gives, God's the giver. I give them eternal life and they'll never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He's the giver. He gives the Holy Spirit. I'll ask the Father. He'll give you another helper to be with you forever. He gives spiritual gifts. He gives gifts of your calling. Paul says, I wish all were as myself, as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. Then later he does spiritual gifts concerning spiritual gifts. I don't want you to be uninformed. James 1, every good gift, every perfect, perfect uh, 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 teleos is, is mature, uh, uh, ripe, every gift of fruition, every mature gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of lights. God, the giver. All right, so let's do some points for home. Three points for home. First, if I could, if I could pull off anything for people who are listening here live or on the internet, if I could pull off anything, 
I'd really want to pull off you finding yourself pursued by this God of love. I don't know anybody who doesn't want to be loved. I don't know anybody who doesn't want to to have someone who truly will accept them for everything they've done, right or wrong. You need have zero fear of rejection from God. You've got nothing hidden from Him. And He pursues you in love. He does everything in His power to woo you to Him. If you sense this right now, that's not me. That's not these words. That's the power of the Holy Spirit convicting you because it's God. God wanting you to know right now how intensely He loves you. And that means I want you to see your value. And your value, and my value is not in what we've accomplished. It's not in how we look. It's not in in who our friends are. Our value is set within this love story. Our value is this God who so loved the world that he gave his only son. Our value is the value of someone pursued from the very beginning of Scripture until the end of days. Uh, Annie Herring used to tell a story about when she was little. She watched uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and Prince Charming comes and kisses Snow White out of the spell the Wicked Witch had cast or the Evil Witch and 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 all of the little dwarfs start singing and life is great. And she said, I always wanted that. And she said, and then I realized that that's not life. She paused then and she said, and then I became a Christian. And I realized I've got the prince who will come find me and who will lift me up And bring me life. And take me home. If you don't know the song, the Prince song by second chapter of Acts, it's worth finding and listening to. And then last point for home. Be a giver. God's the giver, right? And where did we start a lot of this today? That God created us in his image. God created us to be givers. Say, well, I don't have much money that I can give. Oh, I didn't say money. Give money, that's great. Sometimes people need love more than they need money. Not just the words, the actions. Sometimes people need a little bit of time. Sometimes people need a little encouragement. Sometimes people need a little forgiveness. Sometimes they need a lot of forgiveness. 
We've been given so much. God models from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end. He is a God who is a giver. And we were made in his image. Let's reflect that giving in the way we treat others. Amen? All right. I want to bless you in the name of Jesus, but first your homework. Next week, we're going to try and cover two. What is the biblical themes of sacrifice? And yes, Dale, you've already done your homework on that, but you can do better. I'd give you like a C- minus on what you've done thus far. And time, because uh, Larry Burgess and a couple of others have asked that I look at the theme of time, and there's some good stuff there. So we'll do that next week, God willing. But in the name of Jesus, I ask God, the giver of all good and perfect gifts, to reach down and communicate his love to each one of you that you can take it, that you can dwell in it, you can rejoice in it, you can sing hallelujah, knowing you are a guest of honor at the wedding supper of the Lamb, and you can take and reflect the nature of this loving, giving God to other people. That's my prayer for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.